just want to add one final note in regards to this particular slide, this particular um, explanation of a strategy of dominionism, and it's that word overcomers. Through certain overcomers, and so on and so forth. So if I look at certain Christians to be overcomers, other Christians are not. That thinking lends itself to elitism, like an elite, a leader of certain Christians, usually a very small group, leaders who have a certain spiritual endowment given to them, which enables them to be overcomers, and they will be in leadership. They will be the ones exercising their spiritual power, taking over these different kingdoms, different mountains, different spheres of society, right? In order to set up that kingdom of God on earth, bringing heaven down to this earth. Certain overcomers. Well, once again, this is a key word you need to keep in mind because it is unscriptural. Who are the overcomers? According to Romans 8, we overcome exceedingly, right? All Christians are overcomers. All of them. If you are not, a Christ, if you are not an overcomer, you are not a Christian. Full stop. We are all overcomers due to the fact that God has given us His Spirit. Right? You overcome the powers of darkness. You overcome the sin that indwells us through the power of the Spirit. So if you are not filled with the Spirit, if you do not have a Spirit, you are not a Christian, right? Every Christian gets the Spirit. Romans 8.14, Romans 8.16, right? So we are all overcomers if we are Christians. So that, don't get pulled into that thinking that there are some specially endowed Christians and we have to uh, pay homage to them. And they are the overcomers and I'm not. And I have to follow them. Whatever they ask me to do, I have to do because they are just spiritually endowed in a special way. Obviously, it, this is being exploited in certain circles. We call it heavy shepherding, for example, and there are different other terms. And we have to listen to every wish and whim of, of the leaders, down to the most minute details of my personal private life. Well, I, once again, I will say it and I repeat myself, this is not scriptural. Let's progress, bypasses the cross, bypasses the cross. We are talking about the symptoms of dominionism. And the rest of my presentation, as far as we take it, will address different symptoms of dominionism. Let me preface everything I'm going to say with the following. There are dominionist groups which fulfill point one, two, three, and four, but what would not necessarily also fulfill five, six, seven, eight. And then there are other dominionist groups which, which fulfill point five, six, seven, eight, but not one, two, and three. So I'm not saying that every single group which is part of a dominionist movement fulfills every single point which I'm mentioning here, right? So, if I do speak about dominionism and if I am criticized by dominionists in regards to what I say, they say, oh, I'm not this here, over here, right? I'm not into heavy shepherding. No, not at all. And things like that. Well, okay, this is exactly what I say. You don't have to fulfill all ten points in order to qualify to be a dominionist. As a matter of fact, no dominionist qualifies for every single aspect I'm talking about in regards to dominionism. Not one single one. 
and they are very, very diverse groups. But what I'm saying is they have a general message they want to get across. All of them. There are commonalities, similarities between all of the, all of the groups. And, and one of those similarities is that they bypass the cross in some way or another. And when they do, we know it cannot be scriptural, it cannot be biblical. It's off the mark, and off the mark in a very clear and major way. It's not a minor point, right? The cross is the center of Christianity, of biblical Christianity. Christ dying on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin, substitutionary atonement, is the center of Christianity. That is not all of it. Where is Christ's resurrection? Where is Christ's ascension? Where is Christ's return? And many other points which we could add, which also belong to the Christian faith. But there are certain facts in regards to the Christian faith which are major. There are some aspects which are minor. But cross is major. If you bypass that, you leave biblical Christianity behind you. De-emphasizing the gospel of salvation. They do that because part of the message of salvation is the message that you are a sinner. And that does offend. Who wants to be called a sinner, right? That does offend. You have to bow your knees before God Almighty to confess your sins and then to accept His forgiveness. Why are these dominionist churches so full? Because they leave sin completely out. Right? Now let me continue this story with my church, which I didn't finish as, as a matter of fact. And it, it just emphasizes that very point, okay? This is why I'm con- uh, continuing that story. So they said, okay, expound the word. From coward to coward. Don't preach only God is love. We have heard that just about every Sunday for 10 years we are so tired of hearing the same message all over and over and over again. So please tell us a little bit more about the Christian faith than just that. So I talked about sin. <laughs> I believe, would you agree with me? I believe that's part of the Bible, right? <laughs> okay, when that family in the front row was progressing or regressing uh, to the back of the church and then whoops, out of the church. Now, I was not preaching about sin every Sunday. Okay, I was just expounding the word and if I came across a passage which did mention sin, I didn't uh, get around that. I hit it, right? Straight on. Uh, once I was called into my study by all the elders. Okay, after about, let's say six, after six months or seven months or something like that. I was called into my study. All the elders were sitting in front of me. And that one head elder who said he would make life uh, hell, hell for me. He said, okay, here's the deal. you're not allowed to, to mention the term sin anymore from a pulpit. The word sin is not a word you're allowed to mention anymore. As a matter of fact, we want you to preach only about God's love. <laughs> it's true, I'm not making it up. Okay, that's a true story. So I said, it was not a laughing matter at the time, but I, and he said, if I don't, I will be fired. We are paying your salary, and that was true too. I said, well, as long as I find the term sin mentioned in the Bible, I will preach about it. 
pretty clear to me. Well, they were not too pleased with that answer. But, yeah, I have to be responsible to God Almighty in regards to what I'm preaching, right? So, what other answer could I give? If you can't mention the word sin, you cannot mention the word salvation. Why should we be saved? What's the problem, right? If there's no problem in my life, I don't need salvation. I don't need to be saved. Why should I be saved if everything is okay? A-okay. Okay, and, and when my son-in-law and his wife they had a son who was really rebellious, a teenager, and they came to me and said, I have to straighten out their son. Right? I have to help them get their son straightened out. I said, well, it's not necessarily my, op- my task to help you and your um, in, ra- in your test of raising your son, what I can do, I can do counseling, I can preach, but ultimately it's your responsibility. They accepted it. They didn't demand something unreasonable of me. They did accept it. After a while, they came back to me and we were just beaming and said, Finally, we know what's wrong with our son. Finally, we were told the real problem between our strained relationship with our son. They attended or started attending um, a counseling session with a, sec- with a so-called Christian counselor, professional Christian counselor, and the lady uh, assessed the situation and then told them the following. Once again, I'm not making it up. The lady counselor told them that the real problem between them as the parents of that particular rebellious son is the following. The son just can't cope with his perfect parents. His parents are perfect. And their son just cannot deal with perfection. And this is why he is rebellious, right? (laughs) <laughs> and they were serious they were all serious they were beaming finally we know the problem we are perfect parents where is the problem? something like that <laughs> wow I have perfect church mem- members standing in front of me <laughs> Yeah. Sin is the problem. It's not perfection, right? <laughs> it's sin in their lives as well as in the life of their son. Sin, right? If I'm not allowed to preach about sin, well, they can go on in their self-delusion thinking they are perfect, right? And it's, again, what does it do? Yeah, it puffs him up, right? And that counselor does very well, financially speaking. Uh, I have a problem with my elders, because I say the problem is sin. She lives very well. Saying the very opposite. So I did continue. Once again, I'm not saying that I preach about sin every single Sunday. But how can I explain the gospel? How can I explain the reason for Christ dying on the cross if I cannot mention sin? You can understand the gospel of salvation only if you realize that we, are, as human beings, have a problem, a major problem. The problem is called sin manifests itself in many different ways. But at the root of 
our problem is sin. Our alienation, our rebellion against God. This is the problem. So, if you de-emphasize it, if you put that message on second row or third row, there's a problem if it's substituting the gospel of the kingdom for that gospel of salvation or embellishing the gospel of salvation with the addition of the kingdom message. So they don't necessarily say, well, you don't need to get saved. They do say that. You need to come to Christ and confess your sins sometimes. Not always, but sometimes they do say that. But it is not the entire message. Okay, if you stop there, you have not really explained the gospel to them. Because you need to mention the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. And sometimes the gospel of the kingdom is all you need to say. You can leave off the gospel of salvation entirely. So either they mix it, with gospel of salvation, uh, gospel of salvation with gospel of kingdom, or they just leave off the gospel of salvation entirely. Dominionism teaches Jesus didn't try to feed Satan on the cross. He didn't get the whole job done. The church must finish the job. The honors is on man. Okay, the unfinished work of Christ on the cross. That's one way how they bypass the cross. Right? If Christ didn't quite finish the job on the cross, meaning he didn't quite provide salvation for us entirely, there's something needs to be added, right? And who is the one who needs to add that something? Well, this is man. It's me. I need to finish what God, what Christ has left unfinished. What Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, is not quite true. God needs me again to finish the work of salvation. God couldn't save anyone unless I step into the breach and do my, my share. And only if I do, God can save anyone. How heretical is that? You don't need to know much about Christianity in order to know this is totally missing the mark. It's totally off. And not just in a minor point. In the most important point of all. Christ dying on the cross. That was not good enough. What God did was not good enough. He couldn't finish it. Thank goodness he has you. Well, wait. <laughs> Was this approval or disapproval? <laughs> I couldn't quite make it out. <laughs> I think there's a counting session coming on uh, <laughs> after all these. <laughs> We have to talk eye to eye. <laughs> Emphasizes Old Testament law and covenants, works and deeds, and minimizes or even mocks salvation by faith through grace. Uh, we are back in Roman Catholicism. And this is really what it is. It's a road back to Rome. Right? A road back to works. Deeds, covenants, laws. How horrible is that? The responsibility for your salvation is again placed back on yourself. Are you measuring up? Will you ever be able to do enough to save yourself? That is a very demanding schoolmaster. What law is, I mean very demanding and you will never get to the point where you can rest and say I got it now I'm saved right there's always something else you have to do and when once again something more and more and more and more it's a treadmill 
and it will wear you down, it will destroy you ultimately. You will never come to that resting place which the gospel of grace affords you. That Jesus says, come to me, you heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Alright? Take upon you my yoke, because my yoke is light, and the yoke is, ah, I bow my knees before him. I confess him to be Lord of my life. I ask him to forgive me and give me his spirit so that I can live the Christian life. Because he forgave me all my sins, all of them. Past, present, future. Alright? It's not law, it's not covenants. Now, let me just uh, insert a little footnote here. I see this more and more in churches like the ones I already mentioned. We have covenants, church covenants. And, you, you, and these church covenants are being read regularly. Like if new members join, the whole congregation comes together and then all of us, the whole congregation, recites these covenants. I commit myself to do the following. And then they have a whole catalog of things the church requires of me to do. I'm not saying these requirements are necessarily unbiblical. I'm not saying that. Some of them are. Probably most of them are not, meaning they are biblical. But if I covenant myself in that way, God takes my word very seriously. Right? If you are an oath, God expects you to follow through. It's a very serious business. He takes it very seriously. What is what happens if I mess up? Right? Well, okay, there is forgiveness, there is repentance. But why not rely on the spirit within you to follow through with what what God commands me to do, okay? Yes, I do mess up, unfortunately. But why do I need to covenant myself in public to, to commit myself to the things I'm already committed to? And I'm, okay, and, and the elders, I have one particular church in mind. The elders stand in front of a whole congregation and they covenant themselves to another list of things they do. They pray for the congregation by name on a regular basis. That's just one point. Now I could go to these elders and check up on them. Are you doing that? By name? Every member? Regularly? It's just a motion they go through in most cases. Now, they are well-meaning. I'm not saying they are deliberately saying something which they don't mean. They are well-meaning. I'm not criticizing that. But if I would look into their lives and check up on them, which I don't, but if I would, I believe in more cases than not, I would find that they are not following through. And yet, in all public, they covenant themselves to do that. In, in, in the face of God, in the presence of God. And it just leads into that kind of thinking. We have to perform. We have to follow through with a number of rules. And if we don't, we are not true Christians. We are not overcomers, right? And it, it puts a lot of pressure on us. We don't feel the joy in the Lord. We are running and we have to run fast and fast and faster to keep up. Ultimately, we are exhausted. And that's something I was told, obviously I do not know, but I was told by someone who knows or claims to know that there is a great turnover among the pastors, the associate pastors in, at the Villa Creek Community Church in Chicago. Because these associate pastors need to perform and perform to perfection every single week, every single Sunday. They had to put up the perfect performance 
for these thousands upon thousands of people who come into the church. And after a while, they are getting so worn out that some of them have nervous breakdowns and just drift off and then are being replaced by a new set of associate pastors until they are worn out and drift off. Right? It's a red race. You are put on. That's not the Christian life. Far from it. When I once preached in a church in Germany, a fairly large church, 300 people in attendance roughly, and in the first part, I was just sitting like this. <laughs> you couldn't really observe or participate in the performance. I won't go into details, but I had to sit like this through half an hour of, of certain acts being performed on the stage, called worship, nothing of the sort. And then I was called to preach, and this was the first time I was in that church. And I preached on nothing but the cross. <laughs> how, how we can be saved. It was a, a very simple gospel presentation. Okay? A little child could understand what I was saying. I was just expounding certain passages in Romans. And I, while I was preaching, I don't know if you do preach once in a while, you, know, you might have that feeling once in a while. While I was preaching, I felt no one was listening to me. Now, very different from here. I'm glad you are following <laughs> along. But in that church, I thought no one is listening to what I was saying. I felt like I was standing in a refrigerator. That, that atmosphere was icy cold. And I was just looking around while I was preaching and some people were talking, looking up to the ceiling. And, and it was a very strange sensation I felt. Like I'm talking to a wall. And nothing comes back. So it was hard going. But I kept going and finished my presentation of the gospel. Okay. Nothing really too theological, even though this is the most theological message you can present. So I got through, and it was exhausting. So I went down. And then an older lady approached me, 60 years old, and she said, Thank you, Pastor, for preaching that message. This is the very first time in my whole life but I understand the gospel. Very first time in my whole life, my whole life I was a Mormon. And this is the first time I was invited to come to this church. And within Mormonism, it's just follow one rule after another. It was all law, no grace. And finally I understand grace. I see the difference between Christianity and Mormonism. It's the cross, it's Jesus dying on the cross for me. And saving me and helping me to, to be liberated from my sin and also liber being liberated from that horrible yoke placed upon us as Mormons to follow through with all these laws and, and regulations and rules. And she, she said, are you coming back next Sunday? I need to bring my daughter to the church. She needs to hear that message are you coming back next Sunday? I said, well, I'm sorry. That's just the only Sunday I was invited. But she still thanked me for it. And it's the, it's the Lord's goodness, right? Who am I? I'm an unworthy vessel. But he allowed me to preach the gospel and it was accepted. And we praise the Lord for his goodness. So I looked for my wife. She was standing in the opposite corner of the church there was a table with goodies and cakes and whatever um, so she was talking with some people back there and so I made my way back to the back of the church and then a man 30, 35 years old approached me and said after he had heard my message he went around to see the other elders of the church 
And all of them, without exception, had the same impression. They all confirmed what impression he had. And he told me this was the worst message he has ever heard in his whole life. And he said, I can give you only one advice. One advice. Never preach that message again. Because it was so horrible, offensive. To me and all the other elders, they all confirmed my own dislike of what I had heard. He turned around and left. And I was stunned, because I considered that to be an evangelical church, as a matter of fact, the pastor who was somewhere else on that Sunday, and that's why he invited me to fill in, was a former graduate of a seminary I was teaching at. So, well, you are shocked when you hear something like that, right? As a matter of fact, before he turned around and left, he was waiting for my response. Well, I said, Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. But I can assure you that until I breathe my very last, I will continue preaching that gospel message. Until I breathe my very last. And then he turned around and left. He was not very happy with my response. Not at all. And when we were driving home, and my wife said, well, she spoke with an older man and, um, and he came up to her and, and put his hands in front of his mouth, whispered in her ear. He said, this is the message we need to hear in this church and we never hear it. And he was very thankful for our, once again hearing the gospel being preached in this church. This is the message which is never preached here at this church calling itself an evangelical church, bypassing the cross, doing anything under the sun to the point of, of being offensive to some visitors, me included. That is okay. But preaching the gospel of God's love for us by sending His Son, His only Son, to die for my sin, right? This is offensive. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Galatians 3 verse 3. If anyone comes to you preaching another gospel, be it an angel, a curse be upon him. And Paul repeats that again in the same chapter, chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1. A curse be upon him. Another gospel, there are a lot of other gospels being preached other gospels and, uh, and this is the definition of another gospel if it leaves the cross out then it's a different gospel right, right. Only, there's only one gospel and it's the gospel of God's love for us by sending his son to die on the cross so we want to emphasize this very very clearly and it's by God's grace not by works Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 not by works in order that no one boasts. Right? No boasting. I have not saved myself. I could never save myself. You could not save yourself. No matter what you would have done. It's by God's grace alone. God saves. This is our message. And God saves alone. This is our message. Ignores, slides over, sidesteps, gives lip service to, otherwise disregards the fact that Jesus saves us from our sins. Our sins. The biblical teaching of the other depravity of man is bypassed, minimized, neglected, missing totally or mocked. That basically sums up every single message being preached in a seeker-sensitive church. This is a perfect summary. Regardless of, of what is being preached. The emphasis is totally shifted away from emphasizing our lost state in God's grace in Christ to empowerment. 
You can lead a successful life. You can be perfect parents. Even to a point that your son can cope with the perfection of your parents. Right? Empowerment. Self-help programs. And so on and so forth. You can perfect yourself. As a matter of fact, you need to perfect yourself. You need to get better and better and better. According to that motto of Freemasonry, making good men better. Making good men better. That's the motto of Freemasonry. There's not one good man in this room, me included. There's not one good man. And I'm not certainly getting better and better and better. No matter how hard I try, I utterly rely on God's forgiveness. I utterly rely on the working of the Spirit within me to follow through. It's not Martin Erdmann, it's Christ. If you get my name, that's perfectly fine with me. Don't forget Jesus Christ. Jesus is seen as corrupted. He becomes a nebulous, touchy-feely fellow, the object of our passion, a God within, a force, a story, a king, a liberator from oppression, one of many Christs. You can fill in the blank. There are many attributes associated with Christ which are not biblical. He's not a touchy Nebulous, touchy-feely fellow. It's not my buddy-buddy. Read Revelation 1. Right? The one who has eyes of fire. John had to fall or fell down on his face. Couldn't, couldn't, take, couldn't take it in. Right? And Daniel, remember... Even the appearance of an angel was too much for him. He's not a force. He's not a story. He's not a liberator from oppression. He's the one who died on the cross for the sins, right? Of his people. He, he liberated me from my sin, from my rebellious heart, from my evil attitude. Jesus' role as Savior and Redeemer is diminished and truncated and His work is unfinished and therefore the church on earth must make up for His leg. We have already touched on that point. I'm just repeating it here because it does fit into, under that subheading of by passing the cross. If the cross is not the place where God finished His work of salvation, well, someone else has to, right? We already mentioned that. The Old Testament is exaggerated and emphasized. Again, why is that? Because it's just the logical uh, conclusion out of what we already said. If Christ didn't finish, well, we need to follow certain laws. Where do we find the laws? Well, obviously we find them mostly in the Old Testament. So, the Old Testament becomes much more important than the New Testament. The New Testament is minimized or only viewed through the distorted lens of the Old Testament. How should it be? The Old Testament should be viewed through the lens of the New Testament, right? Because there's progressive revelation, meaning God reveals more to us or has revealed more to us as human beings as time progresses. And if the Old Testament comes before the New Testament... There's more revelation given to us in the New Testament. And thus we have to look back on the Old Testament through the lens of more revelation given to us about God, about God's work, meaning the cross primarily. So we have to look through the lens of the New Testament in order to expound and, and interpret the Old Testament. Not vice versa. If you look at through the lens of the Old Testament, if you look through the lens of the Old Testament and, and interpret the New Testament from that vantage point, you will end up in, once again under the yoke of, of the law. There's no salvation if you think you need to fulfill the law 
if you disregard the fact that Christ fulfilled it for me perfectly, and then replacement theology, the church is Israel. Obviously, that's primarily part of a theology of reform circles. And then, um, out of that understanding, you have the Puritan movement. The Puritan movement was, at its heart, dominionistic. And obviously, Puritans appeared in the 17th century. And they wanted to set up God's kingdom here in this world. So we can go back to the Puritans. And the Puritans actually got it from one German theologian. His name is Johann Heinrich Alstedt. Johann Heinrich Alstedt. He was a theologian, a reformed theologian. He called himself a reformed theologian. He was none of the sort. He was neither reformed nor a theologian. He was one of the leading esotericists of Germany at the time. But he was a reformed theologian at the theological seminary in Herborn. That still exists, by the way. It's a Lutheran seminary in the early 17th century. Johann Heinrich Alstadt. And he was a very famous theologian. He wrote many books. That's what he was famous for. Many, many, many books. And students flocked to Herborn to sit under his feet and being educated in esotericism. And one of his students who was there only for one year was Jan Amos Comenius. Jan Amos Comenius or John Amos Comenius or Komensky. He came from Bohemia, which is now Czech Republic. And he was sitting under the teaching of Alstedt, imbibing whatever he was taught. And what was being taught was basically a an eschatological view of the end times, which we now would term post-millennialism. Post-millennialism. Post-millennialism means that the church is responsible to set up God's kingdom on earth, and only after the church succeeded in doing so, will Christ come back. Post means after. And millennium of this 1,000 year reign of Christ. So after the kingdom is set up by, by the church, Christ finally is able to come back. Right? Premillennialism is Christ will come back and set up his kingdom. Postmillennium means the church has the responsibility of setting up a kingdom. And then only and only then Jesus can come back. So that teaching was being imparted to that Jan Amos Comenius by Alstedt and it comes straight out of your court. Postmillennialism is often, is often uh, said to be one of the alternative views of the millennium. Right? It's not a Christian doctrine at all. It comes straight out of your court and I can prove it to you. I can point you to the resources. I did read the books and I, can, I have no problem substantiating that particular point. Postmillennialism is not a Christian doctrine. The very opposite of it. And dominionism is prefaced or ba- is based upon postmillennialism. Right? Building the kingdom of God on earth as the mandate the church has to fill. This is postmillennialism. So if postmillennialism comes straight out of your court, there we know dominionism cannot be a Christian doctrine at all. What happened was Jan Amos Comenius, that student of Alstedt, went to England and got in contact with the divines, the English divines in England, called the Puritans, and taught them postmillennialism. And this is why the Puritans, and they, they picked it up, this is why the Puritans became famous for their promotion of postmillennialism. 
when they saw themselves to be those who initiated the kingdom of God on earth before Jesus can come back. Obviously they traveled to the Netherlands first and then because they were persecuted. They wanted to have power, political power. Remember there was a revolution, English revolution in the mid 17th century and yes they held swords in their hands, little swords, right? They had little armies fighting uh, the Roman Catholic and so on and so forth to set up their kingly reign in England. And they were persecuted and ultimately they left, uh, some, at least some of them left and settled in the Netherlands and from the Netherlands they eventually came to the States and became a, uh, early settlers in the States, 1620, remember the Pilgrim Fathers arrived in Plymouth, what they called Plymouth, on the Mayflower and they had a covenant. <laughs> I mean, it just fits. All the pieces fit once you you understand the dynamics of that particular uh, theology. And when they set up Harvard College, which is now Harvard University, and one of these pilgrim fathers, or at least uh, his son, it's still disputed if it's the father or the son. Let's just say it's the son. I believe it's, it was the son by the name of John Winthrop, John Winthrop, Jr. He traveled to England, got in contact with the Puritans there, came back to the United States, and proposed to the board of Harvard College to call Jan Amos Comenius to be the first president of Harvard College. Why? Well, I already told you the story. In order to promote postmillennialism, which we call now dominionism. Right? Where does it come from? It comes straight out of the occult. Never gets taken in by any theologian, no matter what his reputation is, who promotes postmillennialism. Now, I do have certain, I, I, there are certain theologians who did promote postmillennialism and yet they were by and large biblical. Now I'm not throwing the baby out of a bath, uh, along with a bathwater, right? But they were just deceived in regards to the postmillennialist position. And yet they did teach some very good biblical theology. But they were very few. Most postmillennialists were very far away from a biblical position. And one of those is Jonathan Edwards. He was a post-millennialist. And I could name a num number of others. Uh, J. Gresham Machen, for example, the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary in, in Philadelphia, was a post-millennialist who fought the liberals, really part of the 20th century. He was the leader of the fundamentalists. And yet he was a post-millennialist. So, I'm not saying all post-millennialists are totally unbiblical. I'm not saying that. We do have to di differentiate a bit. But I do say that most post-millennialists are utterly unbiblical. And it carries through. And nowadays, if you go to a church website and you look at the statement of faith, and that's what you need to do if you want to join another church, right? You move into the community, you look at the different uh, churches, meaning... Nowadays, websites, you read the statement of faith, don't be taken in by very well-sounding, very well-formulated statement of faith. There are lots of statement of faith I've read where the church affirms a pre-millennial position, which I do prefer. That is my position. Christ will come back, set up his 1,000-year reign. And I mean 1,000-year literally. That's my position. Um, yes, there are a lot of statement of faiths who do affirm pre-millennialism. And yet if you go to them, they are functional post-millennialists. If you speak to them, they would say, oh yes, pre-millennialism, that's our position. But if you observe what they actually do, they follow through with the program of post-millennialism, knowingly or not. They are functional 
post-millennialists. And that holds true for most churches. Again, this is a sweeping statement and probably not true for every single incident, but most seeker-sensitive churches are post-millennial churches in what they do, not so much in what they confess. They may confess something very differently, but functionally speaking, they are post-millennialists. And then we also know that ultimately reality will assert itself. So if they start out being functional post-millennialists, after a while they realize the error of their ways and then become explicit in what they truly believe, meaning post-millennialism. So where is the trend now where these churches really affirm post-millennialism and have discharted premillennialism, scratch it out of their statement of faith entirely. <coughs> so in a sense this is a good, good step. I'm not saying it's a step in the right direction, it's a step in the wrong direction, but it's still a good development because chaff is being separated from wheat. Right? Sheep and goats are being separated. <laughs> and that is good. Because now we have to make a decision. Do we want to believe, uh, do we want to belong to that particular church? Is this really where we belong? Is this really where we are being taught in the scriptures? And if not, well, we have to make a tough decision. We have to go out, right? You have to leave friendships behind. And this is often a reason why I still linger and don't step out because I have so many good friends. I don't want to lose my friends. What is operational? What is, prior what is your priority? Is it following Jesus Christ no matter what? No, counting the cost? Right? Denying yourself? Or is, is it clinging on to my dear friendships? And accepting all false strong being taught to me, being taught to my, to my children. Right? They are totally defenseless. If the parents think this church is okay, the children think this church is okay. So it's extremely detrimental to your children because perhaps you can rationalize it in your mind somehow. I don't want to lose my friends. That's a rationalization. Almost the entire reason why I want to stay. Uh, think twice about that. What does that mean to your children, ultimately? So, yes, counting the cost, you, you leave. And it's interesting, also, if you do, if you are obedient to what God wants you to do, in situations like that, God will provide. God will take care of you. God will take care of your your children in a much better way than you could have ever imagined before making that step. Right? He who loses his life will he, wants, he who wants to preserve it will a shift in emphasis from Christ the rock of our salvation to building the actual kingdom of, on earth Using allegories and symbolism, especially in interpreting Old Testament prophecies that hasn't yet been fulfilled. You see that all over the place. How can they rationalize certain heresies, right? If they take the text as the text is meant to be, they will never come to that particular point which they want to make in their messages. So in some ways they have to pervert, they have to distort the message of the Bible and how do you do that most effectively? By using allegory. Spiritualizing certain passages. Emphasizing symbolism. Okay, symbolism doesn't speak to us necessarily. It has to be interpreted. Interpreted correctly. And this is just their way of eluding the main meaning of the scriptures. 
and then distorting it and, and changing it and obviously when coming up with certain heresies. Let me just go uh, more quickly through this. And obviously one aspect of why they do it, if, remember, they do emphasize the Old Testament more than the New Testament. And the Old Testament does speak a lot about law and also about God's judgment. If you do not follow through with obeying my laws, there's judgment coming. So there's a problem which these Dominionists encounter if they put the emphasis on the Old Testament because it does speak about judgment. Right? So by using allegory, they can conveniently ship around that particular point of judgment. There's no judgment. No hell coming. They, most of them deny hell, the reality of hell. And then, obviously, they also say, if you want heaven, well, you are the one who has to set up heaven on earth. And I already uh, talked about the way how they propose to do so, following certain laws. This is why theonomy in the last row, theonomy has become such an important doctrine or way, of view, uh, way to view things within dominionist circles, especially one particular group which has come out of Presbyterianism, which looks back to the Puritans. And they called themselves Reconstructionists. I just mentioned a few names, Rush Dooney, Gary North, Gary DeMar, different others, reconstructionists. And they say, well, we have to infiltrate society, we have to get into political power. Once we are in political power, we have to um, enact certain laws which are in conformity with Old Testament law. That group has basically imploded. They got uh, active initially in, let's say, in the 1970s and up to the turn of the century. And they were quite active. They were uh, writing lots of books and people were just distributing these books, especially by Gary North. I think he wrote 80 to 90 different books, perhaps even more. And they were very active also in the homeschooling community. Now, let me say, we have homeschooled our, our children, right? So I'm not condemning certain aspects of what they proposed. We have greatly benefited from homeschooling. What I'm criticizing is that whole mindset that we have to institute the Old Testament law in society as being our mandate which we have to fulfill in order for Christ eventually to come back where all, all Reconstructionists are post-millennialists without exception. You cannot be a Reconstructionist without being a post-millennialist. And this is, what, this is the place where I would uh, criticize them at first because I think post-millennialism is not a Christian doctrine whatsoever. So, um, Reconstructionism uh, had some influence and then they imploded because they fought among themselves to the point that Gary North moved away and had never, and in the final years of the life of his father-in-law, Rushdoony, who says John Rushdoony, he didn't have any contact with his father-in-law anymore because they were fighting <laughs> with each other. And it, the whole movement basically exploded, still exists in certain corners, but it's not the movement it used to be. However, the influence of Reconstructionism has permeated to many, many other Christian groups. And the strange thing which I observe is that those who picked it up from a Reconstructionists are mostly in the Pentecostal charismatic corner. So you have Presbyterians promoting certain teachings in regards to the law, theonomy, based on postmillennialism, and that message has been taken up mostly by Pentecostal and charismatic groups. 
this is utterly surprising to me. I would not, would not have uh, guessed that. But this is my observation. That I am correct in regards to it. I am correct. And it's grievous to me because this also um, has misled or deceived the Pentecostal churches in favor of postmillennialism, which was never a doctrine within Pentecostalism, as far as I know. And once again, that's very grievous to me because there are Pentecostals who who cherish that word more than anything else. And they have been deceived, and deceived grievously, by believing a message coming out of Presbyterianism, which is, I can't, I can't believe it if I would not have known, if I would not know that this is indeed the case. So, once again, we have a little break. <laughs> and I do... Follow through with my promise to tell you a bird. <laughs> you have to come back. 